All right, good morning, everyone. Um, We're continuing our study in Mark this morning. We'll be doing uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 28. Can everybody hear me okay? Is that a concern? A little louder. Louder? Okay, all right. I'll pretend to be louder. So when we started our study in Mark, um, we point out that Mark uses his writing to show the steady escalation of events leading to Jesus being recognized as the Messiah. In chapters 2 and 3, we're still in chapter 2 obviously here, we see Christ defining who he is and what he does in a series of conflicts with the Jewish religious leaders at the time. In the first section of Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we have this great scene of men tearing a hole in the roof of a man's house and lowering down a paralytic to be healed. And Jesus does heal him. But before that, with the crowds and religious elites standing around, he looks to the paralyzed man and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. This declaration that Jesus can forgive sins is shocking to the audience at the time, especially the religious leaders. More importantly, the fact that the declaration was made before he physically healed the man showed that his priority was spiritual, not physical healing. In the second conflict in chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, we see Jesus enlisting the tax collector Levi as a follower. And then he attends a party with Levi's sinner friends. No one at that time would have called Levi a good person. He was a money-grabbing extortioner. People hated him, except his friends, who were likely money-grabbing extortioners as well. So when Jesus shows up at this guy's house and reclines at the table, as we, as we read, with he and his low-life friends, the hand-washing elitist Pharisees start going crazy. You can just imagine that. They say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And how does Jesus respond? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus has no time for spiritual elitists. He comes for the sinners, and this means there's hope for us as well. So these two conflicts with the religious establishment illuminate the character of Christ and the heart of God. And the third and fourth conflicts that we'll discuss this morning are equally illuminating and even more revealing of our problem. So... The title and theme I'm going to go through here. I have a hard time with titles and themes for this series for some reason. So I came up with two working-level titles. Dan, you can pick the one that you want to put on the website. So the first one is Out with the Old, In with the New. And the second one, um, or optional one, is The New Stuff Doesn't Work with the Old Stuff. The theme is... Jesus does not complement our lives, but creates all new lives that allow us to grow and expand. (coughs) Jesus does not complement our lives, but creates all new lives that allow us to grow and expand. So let's start with the text, verse 18, chapter 2. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for wet, fresh wineskins. <clears throat> Verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So as we saw in the earlier part of chapter 2, we have another verbal confrontation here. This time, the conflict was around the subject of fasting. The text says that the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees fast? but your disciples do not fast. Remember in the preceding text, <clears throat> Jesus was feasting at Levi's house. And so many believe that the question came because while Jesus was there at a feast, the Pharisees and John's disciples were perhaps fasting. So let's talk about the main characters and components here a little bit in this text. First, we have John the Baptist's disciples. This is the first of the two references that Mark makes of them. The second being in chapter 6, verse 29, where after John's disciples heard of his beheading by King Herod, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. That's the other reference that Mark makes to, to John's disciples. The only other information we have about John's disciples are in the other Gospels, in the works of the Jewish historian Josephus. In Matthew 11, 2, and Luke 7, verse 18, we see John in prison, and hearing about what Jesus has been doing, he sends a messenger through his disciples to Jesus asking, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 42, we see that two of Jesus' disciples had originally been followers of John the Baptist. One of them was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Josephus' writings indicate that John's followers survived his imprisonment and his death, and perhaps even competed in some sectors with Jesus' ministry. We also see this in Acts 19, verses 1 through 7, where Paul comes across some of John's disciples in Ephesus. He finds that they don't even know about the Holy Spirit. Rather, they claim to be baptized in the name of John. By the way, Paul quickly sets them straight, they believe, and they were then baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we know about John's disciples. What about the Pharisees? Well, we know a lot more about the Pharisees. Where that, while their exact origins are not clear, 
It is believed that they arose around the time of the Maccabean Revolt in 168 BC. So by Jesus' time, they had already been around for almost 200 years. Their name means separated one or holy ones. And from their earliest beginnings, they were strongly opposed to accommodating Judaism to other more contemporary ideals. Like the scribes that we talked about earlier, the Torah was their rock. They described it as the precious instrument by which the world was created, the perfect expression of God's wisdom and will, and the supposing object of human existence. So the Torah was very, very important to them. You could say it defined who they were. They were indifferent to political rulers, so long as they were permitted to pursue and establish their life according to the Torah. So they weren't political, rather they were a lay movement, and according to Josephus, there were around 6,000 of them in the first century, which is about 1% of the population at the time. So they weren't huge in number, but still surpassed the other Jewish parties at the time, including the Sadducees, the Essenides, Herodians, and Zealots, in number, and more importantly, influence. In the words of Josephus, they were extremely influential among the common people. They were regarded as the authorized successors of the Torah who sat on Moses' seat. They held fast to tradition. <clears throat> this isn't new to us. We see this Jesus debating this throughout his ministry. They may have not started out this way, but by Jesus' day, tradition had turned into formalism of various points of practice, observance, and conformity to sort of legal prescriptions. And eventually, this perverse legalism completely displaced the disposition of the heart, which in turn distorted the true intent of the law. They leveraged the Torah into an intricate web of regulation whose purpose was intended to honor it, but it was ultimately confining and a significant burden on the basic human existence. They took pride in sustaining this burden in their lives. We see this throughout the Gospels. So in light of all that background on John's disciples and the Pharisees, we see in verse 18 the subject of fasting. Some quick info on fasting in Judaism. It's one of the main pillars of Judaism. The others are prayer and almsgiving. There were proper observances for fasting, lamenting national tragedies such as the destruction of the temple, in times of crises such as war or famine, and self-imposed fasts for any number of personal reasons. The only required fast was on the Day of Atonement, which lasted a full 24 hours. But, by Jesus' time, the Pharisees had decreed that true godly people should fast twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. So it's safe to say that fasting was a religious commitment, a sign of atonement, of sin and penitence before God. And this is supported in, in, by the fact that in verse 18, it's written that the people or in some translations, some people were the ones challenging Jesus on the issue of fasting. It wasn't the Pharisees that were challenging him. So for commoners to recognize this and call Jesus out for it gives the impression that fasting was regarded as true piety, and it was common amongst the people at the time. So if Jesus and his disciples wanted to be taken seriously in the religious realm, they better get with the program of fasting. That's the idea that's being communicated here.
And Jesus responds brilliantly. Against this pious, somber, bleak backdrop of fasting, he starts talking about a wedding feast. Read what he says in verse 19. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. To understand the impact of Jesus' words, we have to understand what constituted a wedding celebration in those days. And here's some highlights that I found during this study. First of all, the newlyweds did not honeymoon. Instead, they stayed at home for a week and held an open house with continual feasting and celebration for up to seven days. <coughs> I know my wife would have loved that instead of our honeymoon. <coughs> for most people at that time, this was considered to be the happiest week in their entire lives. The bride and groom were treated like a king and queen for the entire week. They were attended to by chosen friends known as guests of the bridegroom. These guests were exempted from all religious observances, which would lessen their joy. This included fasting. In fact, any thought of fasting at such a moment would seem absolutely ridiculous to the ancient audience. And note that Jesus has no issue with fasting in general. He says this in verse 20, when the bridegroom is taken away on that day, they will fast. And here we see the difference between Jesus and John's disciples and the Pharisees regarding the attitude towards Jesus' ministry. Jesus describes his mission as a wedding where he is the bridegroom and his disciples are the guests of the bridegroom. A wedding is not a time to be somber and to fast. It's a time of celebration and feasting. In this comparison, Jesus is again putting himself and his mission at the center. If the disciples of John and the Pharisees would recognize the significance of who Jesus is, they would understand why they too should be celebrating and not fasting. Their non-compliance attests to their non-acceptance of this truth. And Mark is adding some subtle foreshadowing in verse 20 as well. It would be very upsetting to be at a wedding or a wedding celebration or feast and the bridegroom suddenly be taken away in the middle of the festivities. The expectations of a normal wedding at that time would be that the guests would be the ones to leave so that the bride and the groom might begin their life together. And this is again escalation that Mark is using, foreshadowing conflict in Jesus' ministry. We saw it in 1 verse 14 where John the Baptist is arrested. And again in chapter 2 verse 10 where the scribes question Jesus' authority that he can forgive sins. Jesus is very much aware of the future events that will take him away, at least physically, from his followers. And we'll see this start escalating again even more next week in chapter 3. <clears throat> This reference was also likely a reminder of the perseverance and faithfulness to Mark's audience, who were under the persecution of Nero, remember, the bridegroom being taken from the disciples, their subsequent fasting. But we're not done with this scene. Jesus continues on with two short parables. These are the first parables in Mark's gospel, and like all parables, they use images of the day. The first pictures a new patch of cloth sewn on an old garment. Garment. <clears throat> When washed, the patch will shrink, causing a tear in both the garment and the patch. The second pictures old used wineskins filled with new wine, 
that ferments and expands, bursting the old and brittle skins. The wine is lost and the wineskin is ruined. The focus of both of these parables is their finality. The things presented here, the garment and the wineskins, cannot be fixed. They're ruined. So picture having an old piece of cloth with a small hole in it. It obviously takes a piece of cloth bigger than that hole to apply over it so you have room to stitch around it. But if you get the fixed cloth wet, and then when it dries, the new cloth shrinks, it pulls the old cloth with it with each new stitch. The new hole will now be as big as the sewed-on patch, effectively ruining the garment. The implication is, is clear. The new fabric that Christ brings cannot be interwoven with the tired fibers of old religion. It will simply tear it apart. They're not compatible with one another. The second parable regarding the old and new wineskins. I don't know much about wine or wineskins, but other people do, and so I read a little bit about it. It's, it's pretty simple. <clears throat> the wineskins of ancient times are typically goatskins, which are stripped off as nearly as whole as possible, partly tanned so they could be filled with new wine. Their natural elasticity and strength would allow the fermenting new wine to expand. But if new wine was put into old wineskins that had already been used, their brittle, inflexible condition would cause them to burst, and both wine and wineskins would be lost. So the implication here is that the new life that Christ brings is expanding. When Christ fills the wineskins of our lives, the swelling life within stretches us to new limits. The inner pressure expels unneeded things and fills every aspect of life. So dynamic is the new life that the old wineskins of previous religious structures will not contain it. More practically, our old selves, apart from Christ, tend to be old wineskins. We have to allow Christ to modify us or we will burst. We essentially need to give our intellect, our customs, our prejudices, our comfort to Christ. We need to ask him to renew them so that we might hold his new wine. So back to our text, who's Jesus talking about here? Well, he's referring to the, the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. And he's essentially calling them old wineskins. They can't handle the new wine of Christ. They're bursting and the wine is ruined. And these parables illustrate the radical posture and presumption of Jesus. He's not an attachment, an addition, or an appendage to the status quo of traditional Judaism. He cannot be integrated into or contained by pre-existing structures. And we've already seen this, of course, and we're still only in the first two chapters of Mark. Some recent examples. Jesus goes to the synagogue, but he doesn't go there like everyone else goes there. He goes with a new teaching. We saw it in chapter 1. He's like the scribes in that he teaches, but his authority surpasses theirs. We saw that in chapter 1. His contemporaries exclaim, we've never seen anything like this. We see that in the first part of chapter 2. He relinquishes himself completely, but he never surrenders his divine authority. He gives himself in service, but only offers allegiance to God. He gives his life to the world, but he is not a captive to it. So to wrap up this first section, I think it's best to look at the question being posed by Jesus by this image of the wedding feast and the two brief parables. 
Even though this is being posed to the disciples of Christ during the time of Christ, it's relevant to us here in March of 2023 as well. The question is not whether we will make room for Jesus in our already full agendas and lives. No, the question is whether we will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration, whether we will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in our lives. And we're not done yet. The second scene we'll be looking at starts in verse 23. So let's start by setting the scene there as well. It's the Sabbath. Jesus and the disciples are walking through the grain fields, and as they're walking, the disciples start picking off the heads of grain and eating them. There's no indication that this scene takes place directly after the previous one, but it is possible. So as we did with the previous scene, let's look closer at the components of this one. First, the Sabbath. I think most of us are familiar and have a general understanding of what the Sabbath is, but I want a better understanding of the depth of its importance in Judaism. It's one of the two observances that set Jews apart from other nations, the other being circumcision. It extends from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. The fourth commandment instructs Jews to abstain from every kind of labor since God himself rested on the seventh day of creation. This is found in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Included in this Sabbath rest were not only observant Jews, but also slaves and animals, and even vegetation, which could not be cut, plucked, or uprooted, which is, of course, relevant in our text. Unlike the other nine commandments, the Sabbath is rooted in order of creation and attests to the divine order of the universe. According to Jewish tradition, God chose Israel from all the people of the earth and instituted the Sabbath as an eternal sign and blessing of Israel's unique status. This is from Ezekiel 20, verse 12. Different sects of Jews over the years observed the Sabbath differently. They list different classes of work that profane the Sabbath, some of which we would expect, like plowing a field or hunting and butchering animals. Others we'd not expect, like loosening a knot or sewing more than a single stitch or writing more than one letter. The general rule of observance was not to begin a work that would extend into the Sabbath, and not to begin any work on the Sabbath that was not absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary was often defined as life-endangering. So as you would guess, this is where it gets a little interesting. A couple of examples that I read. It was forbidden to get a dislocated foot or hand, to set a dislocated foot or hand. So if you dislocated your foot or your hand or probably any, any joint really, you'd have to wait till the next day to have it reset. It was forbidden to repair a fallen roof, but it could be temporarily propped up so it wouldn't kill you if it fell. So the rabbis sought to have a rule for every conceivable event, which is quite fascinating when you think about it. I mean... Think of all the things that could happen. You need to have a response to all these different things. So it's not really surprising that the controversy in this passage reflects the determination of the Pharisees to uphold and honor the Sabbath. And it's possible that Jesus' disciples are actually violating two categories of work here. The first is traveling. Walking more than 1,999 paces, which is about half a mile, would be considered a journey. 
And this is not permitted on the Sabbath. But there's no mention of that here. Rather, their grievance is that the disciples plucking the heads of grain would be considered reaping. So I was wondering if this casual plucking of grain from a neighbor's field might be a grievance as well, but surprisingly, it's actually permitted, but not on the Sabbath. But it's important to note that they were not really reaping the grain. They don't have any tools. They weren't gathering it into sheaths. It was likely barely noticeable by anyone that a few heads of grain were snatched off as a couple men are, are passing through them. But the Pharisees were there. We don't know why they were there, but they were there, and they were watching intently. They didn't like what they saw, and they questioned Jesus about his disciples doing this. Now, before we go any further, I think it's important to think about the context of what is happening, or what could be happening here. Obviously, the way people traveled in ancient times, and the way people travel today, and the way people eat while they're traveling today is a lot different than what, the, what we do, right? If Jesus and his disciples were on land, it's likely that they were walking. They walked everywhere. And it's hot almost all the time. And there were no rest stops. My family and I did some traveling a couple weeks ago. We take for granted that when we're hungry, we start looking for a place to stop and eat. And a few times during our, our last trip, we were in fairly remote areas. Maybe we had to wait an hour, a whole hour, until we got to a place that we could stop and get something. An hour is a long time for certain members of the Miller family. (laughs) So I I say this because it's completely foreign to us to consider walking around a desert for days and really not knowing when or where you were going to eat next. And these people were not in an air-conditioned vehicle coasting down a smooth highway at 70 miles per hour. They were walking. So when a grain field presents itself and you haven't eaten for a while... It's going to be very enticing to have a snack as you're passing through, regardless of what day it is. After all, you don't know when or if the opportunity will come again. And what does Jesus answer them in verses 25 through 26, them being the Pharisees? He says, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence? which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who are with him. This is a masterful response. We'd expect nothing less from from Jesus. But remember who the Pharisees are. These are strict Jewish scholars who know everything about the Jewish history and tradition. So it's fitting that Jesus is referencing an event in the life of their greatest king, King David, the man after God's own heart and using this event as a precedent for what his disciples are doing. So the event itself is from 1 Samuel verse, chapter 21, verses 1-6. through 6. The passage is set when David and his men are outlaws of King Saul. And at one such time, when they were hungry and desperate, David entered the tabernacle in search of food. The bread referenced here is the showbread. It consisted of 12 loaves that were placed on the altar every Sabbath as food for the priests, and only the priests. But David eats it. He eats the consecrated bread as an exception when he and his men are starving. And this was never criticized by anyone. Note that Jesus does not raise the incident in order to plead for a Sabbath exception for his hungry disciples. Rather, he cites the violation as a precedent. And this is important. 
In the allusion of da to David, Jesus is inviting a comparison between his person and King David. David was the precursor of the Messiah, and we see this throughout the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David is resting in his house of cedar and recognizes that the ark of God dwells in a tent, Nathan the prophet delivers a message of God's favor to David with the blessings and the assurances of his family. Let's look at 11 through 14 in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. From that time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And your days are fulfilled, and you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is the first of several references to David in Mark's gospel. And they are there to define what kind of son of God Jesus is. In chapter 10, verses 40, for, verse 47, Bartimaeus will call Jesus the son of David. Later, when Jesus is in the temple, he will question the religious leaders how it is possible for the Messiah to be both David's son and Lord. This is in chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. The implication is that the Messiah is the son of David because he is descended from David, but the Lord of David because he is of higher authority. We're projected to get to these texts in like 2025, by the way. The appeal of David in our passage begins to define Jesus' authority as the royal son of God, anticipated since the reign of David. Again, remember who Jesus is talking to. The smartest people in the room, or the grain fields in this case, the Pharisees. They should know all of this. If wisdom and knowledge of Jewish history was a precursor to recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, these were the guys to do it. Mark ends chapter 2 with two sayings from Jesus. Verse 27 clarifies the relationship between human life and the Sabbath. That is, people are not made for Sabbath rules, but the Sabbath was instituted in order to bless humanity and enhance its well-being. This is a remarkably similar principle as in verse 22 regarding the wine and the wineskins. As wineskins must conform to wine, the law must confirm human life. Jesus corrects a mistaken interpretation that makes the Torah a burdensome yoke on human existence and recovers its true intent as an aid and a guardian of life. But by what authority does Jesus redefine Sabbath convention? That's in verse 28, where Jesus declares, The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The only plausible understanding of Son of Man is with reference to Jesus. When Jesus uses the words Son of Man, it always carries the definite article, The Son of Man. Referring to Jesus' unique position as The Son of Man with divine authority and power. We see this in Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. In all the Gospels, 
Son of Man is used only by Jesus of himself, either of his present status in humiliation or authority, or his future glory. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, God instituted the Sabbath, and Jesus now presumes authority over it. Once again, Jesus puts himself squarely in place of God, because he is God. Verse 27 offers the principle that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And verse 28 offers the effective authority behind it. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. More simply, the principle in verse 27 is true because the Son of Man in verse 28 is Lord. The authority of Jesus as the Son of Man extends over the Sabbath itself. So in closing, I have to say as I approach these passages, my, thir- my first thought is always, how in the world am I going to teach something that these folks haven't heard before? And that shouldn't be my first thought, by the way. But we sometimes take God's word for granted. We don't mean to, but we do. But it's so rich. And we've read and we've heard these stories dozens of times before. They're very familiar to us. But I hope you're reminded and encouraged this morning by the familiar truths presented here. That Christ's great work is to heal us from our sin that Christ comes to sinners who realize their need for a Savior, that the new life he brings cannot be held in old religious structures or old lives. May these truths invite us to share Christ with the world. For if they could only see Christ, the true Christ, they would find him irresistible. May that be our mission. And we need to reflect on our lives as well. We have communion this morning. But are are we old and brittle wineskins just ready to burst? Or are we living a new life capable of containing the new wine of Christ? So think and pray about these things, friends. I, I hope this was useful to you. Thanks.